It's good to be with you, church. My name is Halim Sa. I serve as one of the pastors and elders here at the Stone. We'll be continuing our study through the book of Exodus today. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 17 today. But before we get there, let's do a quick recap. If you haven't been here for a while or if you're visiting with us, this is our recap. We've been saying that the book of Exodus teaches us about our salvation. That the book of Exodus teaches us about our salvation. That the story of how God saved and rescued the Israelites from their slavery and bondage in Egypt can be seen as a parallel to how God saves us and rescues us from our bondage and slavery to sin and death. In particular, we've looked at two aspects of our salvation so far, two aspects called justification and sanctification. Justification and sanctification. Well, what is that? Justification is the one-time, one-moment aspect of our salvation. It's paralleled by the Israelites crossing over the Red Sea. Justification, God and God alone works in justification. Because the people that need to be saved, the Israelites, they were completely powerless and helpless to save themselves, right? They were trapped between Pharaoh's army and the Red Sea, and God and God alone acts. He rips open the Red Sea, and the Israelites cross over the Red Sea, and the moment they cross over, in that moment, they are saved. A legal change in status happens in that moment. As long as they're on this side of the Red Sea, they're still slaves, right? But the moment they cross over and their feet touch the other side of the Red Sea, they are now freed. They are now saved. And that's the picture of our salvation. Or more precisely, that is the picture of our justification. Church, every single one of you, if you're in Christ today, you had a moment like that in your life. You had a moment like that in your life. A moment when you were a slave to sin and death. You were powerless and hopeless in saving yourself, but then God acted. He brought the gospel to you for the very first time. He gave you ears to hear and a heart to comprehend the gospel. For the very first time, you trusted in Jesus and his work on the cross for your salvation. And in that moment, you were saved. In that moment, God brought you over from death into life. Right? Just like the Israelites were brought over across the Red Sea, you were brought over from death into life. A change in legal status happened to you. You went from being in rebellion against God, an enemy of God, the Bible says, to now being adopted as his son or daughter. From enemy to child. But that's not the end of our salvation story. Salvation isn't just about justification. There's also sanctification. Well, what is that? As the story continued, we saw that even though the Israelites are brought out of slavery, even though they were brought out of Egypt, they're no longer slaves, they were still acting like slaves. They were still living like slaves, as if they didn't know God. They didn't trust him. They complained and grumbled against God. They even wished that they could return back to their lives in Egypt as slaves. And so it is with us. And so it is with us. Just because you've been saved doesn't mean that you no longer struggle with sin, right? In this room, filled with people that God saved, how many people still struggle with sin? All of us. I know I do, right? And for many of us, what we see is that the same sins that we struggle with before God saved us are still the same sins that we struggle with today. Why is that? Why is that? Well, what we saw was that even though 
in an instant, you can take the person out of slavery, right? In an instant, you could take the person out of slavery, but you can't take the slavery out of the person in an instant. Even though you could take the person out of slavery in an instant, you can't take the slavery out of the person in an instant. Those old behaviors, those old patterns of living, you can't take it out in an instant. It takes a long process. And that long process aspect of our salvation is called sanctification. And so justification is taking the person out of slavery. And sanctification is taking the slavery out of the person. But we're still not done. There's another aspect of our salvation that I want us to talk about today. And that aspect is called glorification. It's called glorification. And so you can visualize it like this. There is the moment of justification, right? In this moment, justification, God and God alone acts, right? He brings you over into life from death. That is the moment where your walk with Jesus starts. In this moment, you can say that the eternal punishment, eternal penalty for your sins have been paid and dealt with. And then you enter into a process of sanctification. This is the process by which God is taking the slavery out of you. In sanctification, God is not the sole actor. Justification, God alone acts. In sanctification, he calls you to act also. Right? And essentially he's saying the salvation that I've given you, as the book of Philippians says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. How do you do that? You do that through obedience. And as you obey, as you turn from your sins here, the power of sin is being removed. The power of sin is being moved. But all of this is leading us somewhere. It's taking us to glorification. Taking us to glorification. When does glorification happen? It happens at the moment of our death, it ha or it happens if Jesus would return within our lifetime. And here, even the very presence of sin is removed. At justification, the penalty for our sins are dealt with. They're removed. Through sanctification, as we turn away from our sins, as we obey, the power of sin is being removed. In glorification, even the very presence of sin will be removed. It's the moment when what Matt talked about last week becomes a reality. The moment when you will receive your glorified heavenly bodies that the Bible tells us will be imperishable. What does that mean? No more sickness, no more death, no more allergies, right? All of it dealt with. More than that, the moment when you will receive your new heavenly glorified hearts and minds and souls. For the very first time, we will be able to actually obey the command, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your souls. Why? Because even the very presence of sin is removed, right? The temptation to sin will be completely gone. Don't we all want to make it there? Don't we all want to make it all the way to glorification? Well, how can we make it here? Is there anything that could happen? Is there anything that we can do to mess it all up, cause us to be booted out of this wonderful thing called salvation? What hope do we have that we're going to make it all the way to the end? What assurance do we have that we're going to endure all the way to glorification? That's the question we want to answer today. Maybe our hope that we can make it all the way there. Maybe the assurance that we can have in making it all the way to glorification can be found in our obedience. Maybe it can be found in our ability to obey. After all, 
Obedience is what God is calling us to during sanctification, right? And so let's go to our text today in Exodus 17 to see if that's the right answer. If our obedience is what ultimately ensures that we will make it all the way to glorification. Exodus chapter 17, verse 1. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? If you remember what happened in Exodus chapter 16, just the one chapter before, with the story of manna, all of this sounds very familiar. The people were grumbling because they were hungry, right, in Exodus 16. And now in Exodus 17, they're grumbling because they're thirsty. Now, to Israel's credit, not having water is a big deal, right? Especially in the desert. But still, what have they just experienced? What have they just experienced? They have a God who turned the Nile River into blood, right? They have a God who split open the Red Sea in order to save them. I think it's fair to say that he has command over the waters, right? And what has he just done? He, when the Israelites were grumbling because they had no food, he rained down bread from heaven for them. So I don't know, would it be too difficult for a God who has just rained down bread from heaven to rain down rain from heaven, give them water that way? Would that be too difficult for him? But that's, as if that's not enough, in Exodus chapter 15, two chapters before, we already have an instance where the Israelites were grumbling because they had no water and God acted in a miracle to give them water. So what seems to be happening is they're experiencing a spiritual amnesia, aren't they? They keep forgetting. And so it is with us. When we find ourselves grumbling and complaining against God and going, God, why is my life this way? God, why did you do that? We simply forget what God has done just yesterday, right? What God has just done last week in coming through for you and showing his love and care for you. So they had no water to drink. What should have been their response? Well, their response should have been prayer, prayer expressing thanksgiving and trust even. When God, we're in the wilderness, we don't have any water, we're scared, God, but we know you can do all things. God, you have not failed us once. And so we trust you that you're going to provide for us. Will you please give us water? It could have been a prayer as simple as that, right? And I guarantee you God would have poured down the heavens with water. But instead, what do they do? Verse 3 tells us that they grumbled and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Instead, that's their response. Now, at first read, that already sounds bad enough, right? But what's actually happening is even more heinous. In verse 2, Moses says, why do you quarrel with me and why do you test the Lord? And in verse 7, later, he calls the name of this place where they tested the Lord, Masa and Meribah. And the Hebrew words used here is a term for a covenantal lawsuit. Moses is calling it Masa and Meribah because he's saying, hey, remember that place where you brought a covenantal lawsuit against God? 
So in other words, the Israelites aren't just complaining or grumbling against God. They are initiating a legal proceeding against him. They're legally charging him of premeditated murder. Did you bring us out here, out of Egypt, to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? And they want to initiate capital punishment. And so we read in verse 4, So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me, right? Stoning was the conventional way of carrying out the death penalty. And so the Israelites are putting God on trial. They're testing him, and they're declaring him guilty as they're about to stone Moses. Why stone Moses? Because Moses was God's representative, right? When God called Moses, he said, and you will be like God to them. And so in wanting to stone and kill Moses, they're wanting to stone and kill God. God once again led his people to a place where there was no water to see if this time they would trust him, right? To see if this time they would obey. And the Israelites once again failed to obey. And that's an understatement. And you know, we all face trials like these. Many of you, you're facing it right now. You may not be literally wanting water, but water represents for us that one thing in our lives that if we don't have it, we feel like we just won't make it. What is that one thing for you? Water, water represents that thing in our lives that if you don't accomplish it, if you don't get it, or if you lose it, then your life will be miserable, it'll be hopeless, and it won't be worth living. What is that for you? You see, many of you, you're not literally needing water, but you're maybe wondering what in the world is God doing in your life right now? You're wondering how in the world can a God who claims to love you let that tragedy happen in your life? You're wondering how in the world can a God who claims to know everything you need even before you ask let you be single for this long? You're wondering how in the world can a God who claims to know what's best for you demand that you stay in that miserable marriage when divorce seems like such an easier, happier thing to do even? Will we continue to trust God when there's no bread, when there's no water is the question. Will we continue to trust God when there's no bread, when there's no water, or do we find that our trust our worship and our obedience are conditional. God, I'll worship you as long as everything is the way that I like it. God, I'll trust you with my future as long as you let me pursue the romantic relationship that I want to pursue. God, I'll obey you, not complain, not be anxious as long as you keep my, you keep my kids healthy. Right? Conditional. So don't you see, make no mistake, God calls us to obey. And obedience is the distinguishing mark of someone who is saved, but what if the hope of making it all the way to the end, what if the assurance of making it all the way to glorification was dependent, what if it was dependent upon your ability to fully obey and obey every time? Would you make it? Would anyone make it? No one would. I wouldn't. But our hope and our assurance isn't rooted in our ability to obey. How do we know that? We know because of the way that God responded to the Israelites. As they're grumbling, as they're failing to obey, as they're putting him on trial even, this is how God responds. Verse 5 of Exodus 17. 
And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So what does God do? What's his response? He gave them water. He gave them water. What's the lesson here? The lesson isn't, okay, it's okay to disobey God. The lesson isn't disobey, God will forgive you anyways. That's not the lesson. The reason why these stories of the Israelites failing, but then God providing for them anyways, seems to be on repeat, right? The story of the Israelites failing, 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 but God coming in and stepping in, being faithful anyways and providing anyways, seems to be on repeat throughout the book of Exodus because throughout the book of Exodus, God is teaching us something clear and unmistakable about the nature of our salvation. He's showing us over and over and over again that we don't save ourselves by our good works, that our salvation isn't dependent upon how good we are. It's not dependent upon how faithful we are, but how good, how faithful he is. His abilities, not our abilities. And so there are some of you in here, you've been trying to obey, 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 and you find yourself exhausted, you find yourself anxious, you find yourself burdened all the time. You see, many of us, in some desperate way, we even want our salvation to be dependent on our obedience. We even want that. Why? Because through obedience, you're trying to put God in your debt. Because through obedience, you're trying to put God in your debt. You're trying to rack up a list of things that you've obeyed so you can have some sense of control when it comes to your salvation. You want to be able to say, surely God will save me. Look at all the things that I've done for him. You want to be able to say, surely he loves me. Surely he accepts me. Look at all the things that I've obeyed. You're saying, man, I better obey. I better obey this and this and this because I'm about to ask him for something and I need some negotiating power and so I need to rack up a list of things I said I did for him so that he'll say yes, right? But then what happens when inevitably you fail? What happens when you sin? Well, you lose all hope, right? You've hung your future. You've hung your happiness. You've hung your security on you. And so when you fail, you lose all hope. You start doubting everything. Does God even love me? Am I even saved? Is he ever going to bless me? Right? You're trying to obey so that God will save you. You're trying to obey so that he'll bless you. You're trying to obey so that he'll love you, so that he'll accept you. Right? But the repeated stories of the Israelites failing, 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 disobeying, grumbling, putting a charge against God, and then God still providing for them, exists to show you, exists to show you that God already accepts you. That in Christ, he's already set his love upon you. That in Christ, he's already crazy about you. That in Christ, he's already provided salvation for you. So as Christians, we don't obey so that God will save us. We obey because he's already saved us, right? We don't obey so that he'll love us. We obey because he's already set his love upon us. We obey because he already accepts us. And so 
No, our persevering to the end and making it all the way to glorification does not hinge on our ability to fully obey, to fully obey perfectly. Okay, so if our enduring to the end does not hinge on our ability to obey, then maybe, then maybe it hinges upon our ability to repent, right? If it's not obedience, maybe it's repentance. Maybe we can't obey all the time, but as long as we keep saying, I'm sorry, long as we keep asking for forgiveness, maybe that's the hope that we can have in making it all the way to glorification. Is that the answer? Let's go to Psalm 78. Psalm 78 describes the Israelites' wilderness narrative. It's describing what's happening in the book of Exodus. And in verse 10, the psalmist says, they did not keep God's covenant, but refused to walk according to his law. Even after God brought them out of Egypt, the psalmist says they did not keep God's covenant. Verse 16, he says, he made streams of water come out of the rock and cause waters to flow down like the rivers. Yet they sinned still more against him, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. And just in case you thought, well, maybe after this incident, they'll start obeying. No, they don't. In other words, even after God gave them water from the rock, the Israelites sinning against God, it never stops, but God wasn't negligent. He disciplined them like a father would his son. Verse 31, the anger of God rose against them. And he killed the strongest of them and laid low the young men of Israel. In spite of all this, they still sinned. Despite his wonders, they did not believe. So he made their days vanish like a breath and their years in terror. When he killed them, they sought him. They repented and sought God earnestly. They remembered that God was their rock, the most high God, their redeemer. God even brought very harsh discipline upon Israel. And the people died. And then the Israelites finally repented of their sins. Verse 4 tells us, verse 34 tells us, they repented and sought God earnestly, right? They repented, so there it is. And so maybe that's the hope. Maybe that's the hope we can have that will make it all the way to glorification. Maybe the assurance that we can have is not our ability to obey, but our ability to repent. Maybe it's our ability to recognize when we've sinned, recognize when we failed, and ask for forgiveness. Maybe that's the hinge that our salvation hangs on. Let's look at the next verses, verse 36. But they flattered him with their mouths. They lied to him with their tongues. Their heart was not steadfast toward him. They were not faithful to his covenant. What we see is that the Israelites, even in their repentance, deceived God. They deceived him with their mouths and lied to him with their tongue. God provided ways in which the Israelites could obey the law, but they didn't obey. He disciplined them so that they would repent, but even in their repentance, they flattered him and lied to him. And so it is with us. And so it is with us. It's a parallel, right? We know how God wants us to live. We know, but we just don't do it. We just don't obey. And many times our obedience is partial and conditional obedience at best. But God is gracious to discipline us, and we even repent. We say, God, I'll never do that again, right? But is that true? Will we never really do it again? No, we inevitably fail, and so we deceive God even in our repentance. How many times have we told God, God, I'll never do that again, but then do it again, right? So do you really want the hope of your salvation that you're going to make it all the way 
to the end be dependent on your ability to repent properly? We repent wrong all the time. We need to repent of our repentance, right? So problem isn't with repentance. The problem is with us who hardly even repent properly. We say, God, I'm sorry all the time. But did you know that that's not repentance? Saying, God, I'm sorry, that's not repentance. It's not actually repentance until you turn away from that sin and start obeying. But we're very sorry for our sins, and we call that repentance because being sorry is much easier than actually obeying, right? But then here's the problem with that kind of sorrow. Why are you sorry for your sins? Most of the time when I find myself sorry for my sins, it's because I got caught. It's because I got called out. It's because now I have to face the consequences for the sin. That kind of sorrow the Bible calls worldly sorrow. A worldly sorrow that is self-centered, self-focused. The only reason I'm sorry is because there is some inconvenience brought upon me by my sin. Right? As long as I keep sinning and there's no consequences, I'm not going to repent. I'm just going to keep sinning. But the moment there's consequences, then I'm sorry. That's a worldly sorrow. But the Bible says a godly sorrow says, God, I'm sorry because I've offended your holiness because I've belittled your grace, because I've treated lightly your kindness towards me at the cross. It's God-focused, right? Another way we often get repentance wrong is that we try to turn it into an attempt at atoning for our sins, okay? A form of self-flagellation in which we try to convince God and convince ourselves that we are so truly miserable and regretful for our sins that we kind of really deserve to be forgiven, right? In the amount of sorrow that we try to express before God, with the sorrow, God, I'm so sorry, we're trying to earn his forgiveness with the amount of sorry that we feel. But repentance in and of itself can't atone. Repentance in and of itself can't atone. Only the cross of Jesus can atone. True repentance is not trying to atone for your sins, but taking a hold of the atoning work of the cross. That's what true repentance is. So here's the problem. Our obedience is most always partial and conditional. It too many times has ulterior motives. You're trying to obey because you're trying to get something from God. Many times it's not even um, true obedience, right? And even with repentance, many times it's not even true repentance. It's just a self-focused, woe is me because I just got caught. Woe is me because I have to suffer the consequences. So you see, it's not that there's anything wrong with obedience and repentance. It's that we just keep failing at it. We just keep failing at it. And if our salvation depended upon our ability to obey or repent, none of us would be saved. So then, where is the hope? Where is the hope? What assurance and confidence can we have that we'll make it all the way to the end? Can we make it to the end? Will we? Let's look at the next verses. Psalm 78, verse 38. Even though they lied, even in their repentance, what does God do? Verse 38. Yet he, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all his wrath. He remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and comes not again. I think this is one of the most precious verses in all the Bible. If ever God would be justified in destroying the Israelites and just being done with them, it would be when 
They're even lying to him in repentance, right? If God would ever be justified in just being done with me, if God would ever be justified in being done with you, it's when you go to him to repent, to say you're sorry, but then you're really lying, right? It would be in that moment, but he doesn't. So where's the hope? Where's the assurance of our salvation found? Verse 38 says, he being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. Our ultimate hope, our assurance and confidence that we'll make it all the way to the end is found in his compassion and his atonement. His compassion and his atonement. Now it's important for us to see that it's both. The compassion of God. When we read the stories in Exodus, it's pretty evident, right? Israelites grumbling against him, complaining, but he provides them with manna anyways, them putting God on trial even, him providing them with water anyways. Compassion is evident. But where do we see the atonement? Where do we see the atonement? Atonement is the absorbing of the cost of sin, the paying for for the cost of sin. The psalmist says that he was able to forgive the Israelites because he atoned for their iniquity. Where do we see God absorbing and paying for the penalty of the Israelites' sins against him? Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 looks at how God provided for the Israelites with water in Exodus 17, and he says, verse one, for I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, right? He's describing the crossing of the Red Sea moment. Verse two, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food, talking about manna, and all drank the same spiritual drink, talking about Exodus 17, and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Okay, that's an incredible statement. They drank from a spiritual rock which followed them, and he says that rock was Jesus. What we see is that the pre-incarnate Christ, even before he was born in Matthew, the pre-incarnate Christ was with the Israelites all along in the wilderness. Jesus was the rock. He was with them. And what happened to the rock? What happened to the rock? Exodus 17, verse 6, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock. You shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. What happened to the rock? The rock was struck. It was the people in their grumbling and in their putting God on trial that deserved to be struck, but what was struck instead? The rock was struck instead. That's the picture of atonement. Instead of demanding that we pay for our sins, he pays it for us. He stands before us. Jesus humbled himself and let us put him on trial. And though we deserve to be struck, he was struck for us. And Isaiah tells us that it was him who was wounded for our transgressions, that he was bruised for our iniquities, that the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and that by his stripes we are healed. That's the picture of what happened. Everything so far that we've talked about leads us to this one conclusion. You ready? What's the hope of our salvation? What's the assurance that we're going to make it all the way to the end? Jesus. Jesus. He's our hope. He's our assurance. He's the only way. He's the rock of our salvation that was struck for us, and by his stripes we are healed. Let's conclude with some applications. If ultimately... 
the hope and the assurance of our salvation is rooted in Jesus alone, right? His obedience, not ours. His atonement, not our, our repentance. Then what do we do with obedience and repentance? Do we just give up on it? Do we just not obey anymore? Do we just not repent anymore because we're going to fail at it anyways and it doesn't really matter anyways? Is that the application? Absolutely not. It doesn't mean you stop trying to obey. It means that you keep obeying, but with the freedom you've never experienced before. When you trust in the rock for your salvation, when you trust in Jesus' obedience and not your own, it doesn't mean you stop obeying. It means that you obey with the freedom and a joy you've never felt before. Because why? Why? Because your salvation doesn't hang in the balance anymore. Right? You're obeying, obeying, obeying. And as, as long as you're obeying, you feel good about your salvation. Oh, God's going to save me. Look at all the things that I'm doing. But the moment you fail, you doubt everything. God, am I even saved? Do you even love me? Your salvation hangs in the balance. So even when you're trying to obey, you are petrified. There's a burden. There's an anxiety. I'm, I'm doing okay today, but am I going to fail tomorrow? But when you look to the rock and you see perfect obedience... And you see that your salvation hangs on his perfect obedience. You see that your salvation is unshakable. You see that your salvation can't be taken from you. You see that it's absolutely secure. And so when you go to obey, now you obey in freedom, right? You obey because God's already saved you. You obey because God's already loved you. Repentance. Repentance. It doesn't mean we give up on repentance. It means that you repent in ways that you've never repented before. When you look to the rock, you realize that the rock has already been struck for you. Right? That at the, at the cross, Jesus was struck for your sins, the past, the present, and future. And because Jesus has already been struck at the cross for you, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so you're not trying to repent, trying to get out of punishment. You're not trying to repent going, God, are you going to strike me? Please don't strike me. I'll repent, I promise, right? Because you see that the, at, at the cross, the rock was already struck for you. You can repent with confidence, knowing that your debt has been paid in full. And so it's not dependent upon you. Don't look to yourself. When it comes to your salvation, don't look to yourself. Don't look at your ability to obey. Don't look at your ability to repent. Look to the rock. Look to the rock. His obedience. His atonement. After all, when you're on your deathbed, and you're breathing your last gasping for your next breath. How are you going to breathe your last in peace? How are you going to breathe your last with any hope that the next time you open your eyes, you're going to open your eyes in glory? What hope do you have? You're going to place your hopes in all the good things you've done? Are you going to find your confidence in all the times you've repented? Or are you going to say, Jesus, my only hope is you. Jesus, my only peace is you. Don't look to yourself. Look to Jesus, the rock of our salvation. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this precious, 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 wonderful gift called our salvation. And Lord, it would not be precious at all if you left it dependent on us in any way. If we could somehow fall out of your salvation, 
we would every day. Father, every day we fail you. Every day we distrust you. Every day we grumble and complain against you. And yet you've given us a salvation that is unshakable because of the work of your son. And so we look to him now. We say that he is our everything. We say that he is our only hope, our only peace. Only way we could have any confidence at all that we'll make it all the way to the end is because he made it all the way to the end. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross and he said it is finished. And so we trust in that finished work of the cross, Lord. And we ask that this good work that you've started in us, that you would finish it until glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.